Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. Today's podcast guest is Rachel Coxcoon, who champions climate action at a local government and community level. Rachel is the founder and director of Climate Guide, an organisation providing advice and support to local government councils striving for a zero carbon future. She's also a councillor and cabinet member for climate change and forward planning at Cotswold District Council. And if that wasn't enough, she is undertaking a PhD at Lancaster University looking at the impact of people's differing outlooks on the net zero transition. I'm interested in hearing about the significance of local government in tackling climate change issues. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Rachel to the podcast. Hello. Hello, Caroline. Thanks for inviting me. It's my absolute pleasure. So I'd like to start by just getting a bit more of a background about, you know, obviously you've got lots of exciting things going on <laughs> professionally at the moment. Well, tell me a bit about how you got to uh, running Climate Guide. What were you doing before and how did you become interested in sort of the local push on climate change? Yeah, um, so before I set up Climate Guide, I worked for a long time, for about 16 years, for an organisation called the Centre for Sustainable Energy in Bristol, uh, which was a, a large charity working broadly in the area of climate change and fuel poverty and the work I did there was leading uh, the team that did all of our community energy work so you will have seen examples of communities that own their own solar farm or wind farm and things like that so that very localized response to the to the climate crisis but the other thing I led on there was our work relating to the planning system and local government and I guess it was through that work I was working with some of the leading local authorities in the country that had really strong planning policies and really forceful ways of engaging with developers on how to build better places that were less impactful on the environment, more sustainable homes. And yet where I was living at the time in the Cotswolds, uh, I felt that the administration there were just not getting it right at all. And all around me, I was seeing poorly planned development with no decent transport links, what I felt were low grade homes generally not designed for the future, not resilient to a warmer climate. The town I represent, Morton in March, had been badly flooded in the past. I think it was just a lot of frustration with that made me put myself forward for election on the hope that if, if we were able to take control of the council, we could change things, which has been really impactful for me because I've been able to, you know, I was able to take that role of cabinet member essentially for the things I did as a job. Can I be cabinet member for all the stuff I know about? Thank you. <laughs> was kind of how it went. So yeah, cabinet member for forward planning means I'm in charge of the strategic local plan for the area, how what gets built where and to what standards, uh, as well as uh, climate change, which is something Cotswold District Council had done nothing whatsoever on before their environment team was basically limited to dealing with fly tipping. That's super interesting because you've been on the outside, you've seen what it's like you're thinking oh gosh it's very frustrating and now you've stepped right into it to, to try and make change from the inside if they weren't doing a lot before I wonder what that culture was like and how it's been for you to go in and say oh look we need to change lots of different things uh, how, how has that been for you yeah, that's been quite a struggle. I guess people on the outside, they go, they go out once every four years on polling day. And I'm sure it's the same in national government as well. I kind of have more sympathy now for, uh, for national government in that you win an election. That doesn't mean you can turn around the next day and go, now we're doing all these things. Because as an example, in the case of the Cotswolds, there literally were no staff doing anything like this. So having worked with, with bigger councils, you know, in my professional sense, where I would say, oh, I'll phone the head of sustainability and the climate change lead and the person who leads on their buildings retrofit, there was nobody in the council doing that. So the first six months were spent, some of which I was essentially doing officer level work. And, and it's kind of working out what can we do? How, who do we need to recruit? That takes a long time. And then also coming into a council and having to get to grips with its finances. And you can get incredibly political about it, which I won't do. But essentially, I totally respect people's worldview. If your worldview is on the right of the spectrum, then you will have reasons for believing that actually you think the world is better run 
on low taxes and just providing a base level of, of services. And you might have wider views that society will come together and do charitable things and sort of support itself. Uh, and I guess, broadly speaking, that is the, the right of centre position. And that's how the council had been run. Our attitude was that you don't necessarily, as a local authority, have to just deliver the basic statutory minimum. And then actually, if you invest in things that aren't your statutory duty, like strangely, councils don't have a statutory duty to tackle the climate emergency. So you have to make the case to invest in that. And you're working with a base budget that you've inherited from someone else that's based on how much council tax you can collect and all of these things. You can't just whack council tax up by 10% overnight. So you've got to kind of cut your cloth to suit, which is quite frustrating. Again, if you've come from working with really forward thinking and often much bigger councils, like huge city councils that have a much bigger budget because they have a much bigger population and so on, uh, you know, and then working out how can you make that work in what is a relatively small rural district is it's quite a challenge. So I'd say we probably spent the first year just putting the building blocks in place. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic came along and, <laughs> and picked some of that <laughs> almost immediately. But, you know, that happened to everybody. And because of uh, the sort of attitudes with staff within the council already, have you been able to take them with you? Because obviously you're bringing something new to the table. Uh, have they... Have you been able to persuade them that actually this is the direction of travel for, for the council and the community? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. I think, and I'm sure, as I said, even at national government, I'm sure this is the same. Civil servants, which is essentially what local government staff are, they have views and they have lives of their own. And I think those that were very strongly aligned with the previous administration in any place when a very new approach comes in, we'll find it hard. It's, it is quite hard to retain a completely unbiased position. I think for some people where perhaps their worldview wasn't deeply aligned with what the previous administration were doing, for them, it's been a bit of a release and they're going, oh, great, this is how we wanted to work. So I think from an awful lot of staff, I've seen a huge amount of enthusiasm for what I guess you would position as a more proactive leading position by the council, particularly on these issues around climate change, which Cotswold was basically silent on before. And I guess for other staff, it will have been harder. And there are there are reasonable arguments people can can make to say, I don't think the council should be doing this. And it sort of goes against what I believe local government is for. And I respect that. And I think probably, you know, it might be that certain people have left and gone on to other jobs. And that was possibly driven by the fact that they're not aligned with what the administration now believes. But I'm sure that that happens everywhere when there's a change of administration. And again, that's part of the that's part of, I guess, on the outside as a voter. You don't see that. You think of the council as this homogenous unit where an election happens. And as of the very next day, things will be done differently. But the human reality is not like that at all. In that context, then, where do you prioritise? Because the climate issues are in a state of emergency and we kind of need to get on with it, how do you recognise the realities of that situation and prioritise what needs to be done first? I think this is where I'm quite lucky because this is my job and it's quite easy to do a sort of chicken little, the, the sky is falling and run around and do random things that seem quite impactful because they're visible. Um, so a lot of councils spend a great deal of time doing what I talk about as the quite inward looking stuff, you know, well, we own this building, can we put solar panels on this building? Uh, and that, you know, that can be quite a tricky project. It's visible, you can take a photo of it when it's done and all that sort of thing. But actually, that's a sort of, you know, in some ways, that's quite immediate thinking without stepping back and saying strategically, what is the most important thing we can do to bring our emissions down? And that leads you to thinking more widely about your outward looking focus and that's particularly true for a council like the Cotswolds that has a re really remarkably small budget I think people we because district councils collect the council tax people think that money is all ours but we only keep 7p in every pound the rest goes to the county council the police the you know the parishes the towns so our budgets are far smaller than a, a fag packet calculation would suggest when you multiply it by the number of households and times that up by council tax you think we're just minted but we're really not so, you know, one of the main commitments I asked the, the Lib Dem group to make when I was running was we would update the local plan. The local plan to many people is unbelievably dull. It's this enormous planning document that determines what can be built and how. But through my wider background, what I knew is that 
that will stop bad places being built. Every house that gets built that isn't up to scratch in terms of fabric, that doesn't have solar on the roof, that isn't properly linked by public transport, that doesn't have any decent cycling and walking infrastructure, that's baking in carbon emissions for years to come. So if you can update those strategic documents and if you can strengthen policy so that developers suddenly find they're hitting a brick wall and aren't able to get away with the cheap and nasty anymore, you're kind of, you know, you could calculate that those houses are going to be there for 100 or 200 years. And, you know, retrofit costs far, far more than doing it properly the first time. But that can seem so boring and updating a local plan takes a long time. So you've got people sending you emails saying, why is there no solar on the council building? And it's kind of like, I'm not prioritizing that because actually we're already buying in green energy and I'm go- and, that, and it's a strange old listed building and we're sort of still trying to work out if the roof is strong enough. And that's all happening in the background. But that would be 8.0000 something of our district's emissions if we put solar on the council roof. And yeah, we can get some headlines out of it. And yeah, some councillors can have some photo opportunities. But far more important is to take the biggest weapon we have the boring, dusty, fusty local plan and make it so that it's one of the best in the country and really, really lay down a marker and tell developers what has to happen around here. So that's it's that kind of work mm. that, that we've had to do. And then from my point of view, coming into a council that had no real background in doing that work, really politically as well as at officer level, it's been a huge job of, of just trying to create that narrative and trying to raise awareness if people don't even have the basic understanding about impact areas where do most of our emissions come from then they'll start in the wrong place and I see that all the time uh, when I ask people you know what are you doing about climate change or whatever if I'm working with a parish council or some small council they very much focus on things like plastic now the plastic pollution crisis is I'm not I don't want to do it down at all. It's an enormous environmental issue that we absolutely have to tackle. But actually the production and inability to recycle plastic isn't by any means the main driver of the climate crisis. So when a household and or a council is focusing 98% of their environmental effort on what to do with their plastic, but they haven't looked at how they're heating their home or what is driving their car around or their diet or whether or not they're still flying on holiday twice a year. It's just putting all your effort in completely the wrong place or or giving it too much weight, at least. Yeah. It's not to say that you shouldn't be doing that, but it's it's giving it far more weight than it deserves in the overall equation. And outside of, because you obviously have wider experience other than Cotswolds, have you seen places where you've thought they are absolutely nailing it? They've got it, they're getting it right and they're already down the track with it. Are, are the, uh, have you had contact with councils yeah, that are doing that? Yeah, there are. There are some great councils out there and they're doing different things in different ways. You know, I don't think anybody's doing it right across the board. And some of that, I, I have to say, whether it's it's not political, they could be Conservative, Labour, Lib Dem, Independent Coalition. There are different councils doing different things. And what we all face is the same barriers. There is not enough funding. Local government has been decimated over the last 10 or 12 years. So I think on average, local government is receiving about 38% less funding than it did in 2010. Uh, and that is nowhere actually more severe than within planning uh, in a, at the district council level. I think I saw some statistics that planning policy, these people that make the plans and the strategies that I was talking about, have, have lost about 62% of their funding in a decade. You know, so you've got councils everywhere basically trying to achieve this on a shoestring. And then I think also from the outside, local government is complicated and even people who live in a place can't get their head around who's supposed to do what. So if you live in Gloucestershire, where the Cotswolds is, you will have your town or parish council at the very grassroots level who's responsible for some basic things around allotments, potentially play parks, road verges, cemeteries, all these things. Then you'll have your district council that runs your local plan, does your housing, your benefits, economic development. Then you've got your county council that's responsible for transport and adult social care and education. And if they won't talk to each other properly, particularly where there's a political difference, this makes an issue, then you're living in a place where potentially you've got a county council. It's not in their interest to be helpful to your district council and to be to go out of their way and do things, you know, decent transport projects. Or you've got people moving at different paces where you might have someone like me who's so there's no bounds to my ambition at district level. But 54% of the Cotswolds emissions are transport related and we don't control that. And, you know, my belief is that Gloucester County Council are not as committed 
at a political level as the districts below them. So you've got these differences. And so some of the best councils that I see out there doing things are what are called unitary councils. And that's where the county and the districts have been merged together and you huge area. So Cornwall, for example, Cornwall has amazingly advanced policies on renewable energy. They've done lots of good work around even thinking through their whole economic strategy. Then you'll have cities, you know, where culturally there's a bit of a difference, places like Bristol, who I think have been leaders for a while. Southampton is another one. Everyone gives Bristol the credit for being the first to declare a climate emergency, but actually they weren't. Southampton did it about two years earlier. So you've got these examples, Nottingham, people who take brave decisions like Nottingham City Council some years back implemented a thing where they charged all employers if you wanted to offer parking in the town and you had more than I think it was 10 parking spaces, you had to pay the council £400 a year. And what that did was made employers turn around and go, well, actually, we're not going to provide free parking anymore. And then suddenly people were going, oh, gosh, now I have to pay to park in town. Maybe I should look at whether I could get the bus. Maybe I should go on the tram. But what Nottingham did very cleverly was they kept that money that they earned from those parking places and they ring fenced it for public transport upgrades. So they created a virtuous circle whereby then people said, oh, maybe I'll get the bus. Oh, look, there's new buses. Oh, look, there's new trams. And suddenly they've broken that cycle. And so they're rightly famous for having done that. So, yeah, there's there's great case studies, but you have to be aware that some small districts have tiny powers and money compared to some big unitary authorities and from the outside a lot of people don't understand that and then they get frustrated that their council isn't achieving these great things that Nottingham or someone like that is doing. Yeah I think I think you make a really good point about the complexity looking at how the structure is within your area that you live in. Um, I myself have found it a little bit tricky to work out who does what and why. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to make an infographic or something and just put it at the top of my Twitter feed as like a pinned post. Yes. <laughs> I feel like a, constantly explaining to people what your council does and doesn't do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, but it's it's good to hear that there are successful operations out there and I like the idea of unitary that sounds <laughs> that sounds like it's a good thing that everyone should share and thinking about sharing do those people or those organizations those councils that are are setting the bar at the right pitch do they share their ideas is it easy for other places to go oh they're doing that right how have they done it let's share that Yes. Yes and no. I mean, there are there are organisations, the local government organisation and things like that. There's also a, a charitable organisation called UK 100 that started off really as a sort of urban thing about big cities getting to 100% renewables. But I was part of a consortium of rural councils that work with them and set up a countryside version, the countryside network. Uh, and through that, we do a lot of sharing. But again, when you look at some of these big councils who've achieved great things and you dig into it often, they did it with a sort of one-off funding bid. There was some government competition that came and went. And I, this is a source of real frustration for me, having worked with lots of councils and also worked with Bayes. I know that there's the sort of list of councils who are the favourites. And it, we're in a position where as, at local government, 300 and odd councils are constantly pitted against each other for funding. So you look at these things that have been achieved and you say, Council A has done this amazing thing, let's all copy it. And then when we look into it, Council A was given 10 million or 15 million pounds to do a thing to prove a point. And without that funding, it's actually very difficult for anyone else to replicate it. Similarly, it's all very well, a place like Nottingham doing its thing and other similarly sized cities could learn from it but it's not something we can replicate in the Cotswolds because we don't have the density of that public transport network plus which if we as a district council suddenly started charging everyone in Sirencester to drive in we have no guarantee that the county council would respond by providing or doing anything strategic on bus networks so we've you know we can't necessarily copy it so lack of funding when that funding comes it comes and goes it's quite you know short term difficult to deal with so again if you're a small council with limited capacity suddenly creating a project out of nowhere and delivering it in what is often a ridiculously short space of time isn't really within your gift so the money again and again goes to those bigger councils who've built up the staff and have the bigger base budgets actually what i see happening is the gap is widening and no more is no no more is that more obvious nowhere is that more obvious than in what, what I now see as a rural and urban split. 
places where most of the people live, the big, big urban centres, the combined authorities, the mayoral authorities, where they've got that extra layer of political clout, they're in there, they're arguing for the money, they're making these sort of citywide deals, and rural communities are just increasingly left behind. Uh, and at a national level, if you looked at the, the carbon savings and all these things, you can see how on paper you might say, well, let's tackle London, let's do Greater Manchester, let's do Birmingham. Nottingham, Bristol, what have you, and we'll have dealt with millions and millions of people and they will all have some psychopaths, but that's no use at all if you live in Cambridgeshire or Lincolnshire. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's very interesting about coming, it comes back to knowing your region, doesn't it? And uh, that each region is going to have slightly different problems, but the finance is a real issue if, if you're in a rural setting and you're not getting that finance come through. I'm guessing because you have situated your professional life at this level, rather than the individual, rather than the big government, you've chosen to go in at this sort of community, more localised area. Is that because you do feel that actually there is a lot that can be done at that level because you're, you you know, if you're right at the top of government, there's all the bureaucracy and it takes you may or may not get stuff through. Do you feel like you can be more impactful at this particular level? Yes, I, I do. And I also think that, you know, when you compare the UK, uh, England especially, to other parts of Europe, we are far, far more centralised and local government is far less well-funded. So we have an extraordinarily centralised governmental system in this country, which I think leaves people feeling like there's a democratic deficit. You know, they go out, rain or shine and they vote for parishes for districts for counties whatever and then they can't quite work out what's happening as a result and then that I think is partly because so much of the money and the power is held at Westminster and yet there is a lack of understanding in these examples like I just gave about that you can't have a one-size-fits-all mechanism it's it's all far too centralized and also to some degree it does need local intelligence to know what will work uh, and for that reason, I actually know, although I'm at that, that sort of district county level where I operate, I do work downwards a lot. I do a lot of training and work with parish and town councils that I think are a bit unsung because right there you have these units of, you know, at a little village level, it could be literally three or four hundred houses. At a bigger town, you could be looking at five or six thousand. And what you have there is, is the opportunity where you can think about doing things like I did with a town council down in Somerset help them set up a scheme where the town council employs their own retrofit coordinator. So this is a person whose job is literally to know that town well enough, that they know the names of all the streets, they could walk every street, they know, you know, Smith Street is where all the Victorian terrace villas are, Jones Street is all that 1950s semi-detached bungalow stuff, whatever it might be. And that person's got that really good sense and is known locally and can go and knock on doors. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm from the town council. I'm the retrofit coordinator. We're doing a street by street scheme and your houses are all the same. You know what I mean? And at, at the at the county and even at the district level, you can never have that level of grassroots knowledge and acceptance. Uh, and so I think those levels need to work together. You need something like a district helping to coordinate a network like that. You need town and parish councils having these people, you know, maybe for two or three villages at a time where you can build that grassroots understanding and feed that intelligence back up. And that would be from from housing quality right up through to transport. You know, why don't people walk to school? Well, actually, it's just literally that one junction there. That's the dangerous bit. And if we could just fix that all the parents in this village would walk to school instead of driving. You need that grassroots. So I think, you know, we need to recognise that the rest of Europe does better on this because their government is is more decentralised and they allow more community involvement or municipal involvement at least. And, and we just, for whatever reason, are resistant to that in this country. And that's frustrating because you spend a lot of time voting people in yes. to different levels of government. But realistically, then they haven't got the power or the funding to achieve very much. Is that because of government itself is wants to keep it centralised because that's where all the power is? How do and and how do we, do we affect change? This is probably somewhat out of your remit, but I'm just curious as to if we're in this place and other people are doing it better because they've spread out their money more effectively. 
what would stop us doing it here or what would catalyze oh it? i mean yeah it probably does go beyond yeah, sorry. we've got all sorts of strange <laughs> i mean when you i mean i did a bit of reading about this recently and i can't even remember why but looking at this problem of of the kind of aborted local government reforms that we've had here you know back in the 70s there was a big rejig and they made all these metropolitan northern boroughs and all of these things but essentially, I think we've got so, you know, a thousand years of history, sort of people saying, this is my shire, please don't move the boundary. And, you know, there's a whole load of cultural, historical references and stuff that is around identity, I think, that that prevents wholesale reform of local government. So we've got these strange situations where I think we've got this middle layer of districts and boroughs that in many cases aren't big enough to be to, to be powerful enough combining them into large unitaries on paper looks promising on in reality what does that do to the political balance where we all know that rural areas tend to be right of center if you combine them into bigger units you tend to end up with a bluer map for some people that might be positive for some people that might be negative so um you know there are all these kinds of strange reasons why local government reform just seems to keep stumbling in this country but we and then I do think we definitely suffer from a, a sense that we want to keep power in Westminster, a concentration of power with relatively few people. That that feels like a sort of, again, a cultural thing coming out of Westminster to me. And I, I don't really know what the answer is. Yes. Yes. That's probably a whole different episode. There are a whole other PhDs <laughs> on that, I'm sure. <laughs> Thinking about um, your links with the community, because you're sort of working downwards, how important is it to get the community that you are serving to be well to be knowledgeable in the first instance about what's what's why it's important that we look at these issues of housing and transport from a climate perspective and then taking them with you how, how important is that yeah i mean the whole taking taking them with with us phrase that's a really interesting one because it sort of suggests a resistant populace you know, it suggests that like we're going to have to drag them there by their hair because none of them want a low carbon future. And that isn't really true. You know, when you look at the polling, people want to see more close knit communities. People like the idea of less congested streets, uh, better air quality, all of these things. So to some degree, it's not hard to sell the vision. In fact, one of the things we're just finishing up at Cotswold is in relation to this local plan is a sort of a little animation we've made to go along with our local plan consultation, which is basically looking back. So we sort of made an animation based in the 2040s saying, you know, this is we look, you know, this is us looking back on the 2020s and saying how things were and what we had to change to get here to make things better around cycling, walking, better buildings, all those things. So it is about people are on board with the vision. And then going back to what I was saying about the lack of money and things like that, what they're not on board with is the belief. So then there's fear. You know, I've been doing some work for a big council up north. And, and what's really come out there in relation to their climate strategy is that people are totally on board with having really fantastic bus service, segregated cycle lanes, covered bus shelters with apps and real time information and definitely use all of these things. And, and then you ask them, what will the benefits be? And they'll say, well, the streets won't be so congested. And we can get all those cars parked on the pavements out of the old bits of town. And we can do this and we can do that. Our kids will be able to cycle to school. Everyone will be more active. They can totally see that. And then you say, and what are your fears and concerns about this? And their overwhelming response is, it just won't happen. The council will mess it up. The government won't do the money. What will basically happen is I won't be allowed to drive to town anymore. And there will be no other way. I won't be able to do my job. It will take me three hours to go here, here, drop my kids off and come back because the bus will be rubbish. And so there's this sense that, yeah, we want it to happen, but we don't believe you'll make it happen. And we think we'll make your, you will make our lives more difficult in the attempt. And then you'll leave some pig's ear of a half done job. And then that, I think, that I think it's reflected because government at a national level makes these pledges makes these we've declared a climate emergency will be net zero by 2050 and then almost everything they do is immediately undermined by by headlines saying well that won't lead to this and they've underestimated that and this amount of money that they've allocated is pitifully inadequate for the task in hand and so i think there's this there's this desire to believe in the vision and then in a complete and utter lack of belief that at any level of government, it's deliverable. Mm -hmm. And then and then it comes down to who's blaming whom for what, you know, 
some people would say, well, it's all Boris's fault and he doesn't really believe in it. Other people will say, oh, well, councils are all rubbish. And I don't really know the answer to that other than that certainly around transport examples, again, mostly from abroad, suggest that piecemeal change doesn't work and that you have to be extraordinarily radical. So a really great example is Ghent. Uh, in Belgium, they introduced something called the um, the circulation plan, where pretty much overnight they massively restricted traffic to the centre of town. Then they cut the outskirts of town into chunks that you couldn't travel between, which meant you had to go out of town onto the ring road and back in just to travel a few streets. And the effect was almost immediate. They got their cycling share up from something like 12% to 35% in two years. But the mayor had death threats in the weeks leading up to it. You know, So the level of political bravery needed to say we're going to do this and we're going to do it properly is enormous. And the amount of abuse you get as a politician just generally is so high that it takes it takes quite a lot for someone to step up and, and implement something quite as radical as that. Uh, that's a fascinating insight uh, and good story because it's a nice ending, but obviously highlights the trickiness of it all. Yeah. Now that you're you're in at that local level and you've obviously been on both sides. Do you feel, do you feel brave in your role that, uh, has it given you that, Oh, I'm here, I'm going to make a difference or has it, as it, um, as it made you feel, goodness me, this is quite a tricky position I am now in. Yeah. I suppose the difficult thing is, you know, you get abuse, you get abusive emails, you get people sending things on social media blaming you for stuff and again often you're sort of like actually the thing you want me to do is not within our power like for example I as Cotswold District Council cannot build you any cycle paths because we don't own the roads and pavements that's the county council you know but that you know there's one particular man that writes to me regularly on Twitter constantly berating us and I, I feel like I don't know how many times I can tell you the same thing I do feel brave. You know, what we're doing with the local plan is pretty radical. This is the Cotswolds. This is 80% area of outstanding natural beauty. And one of the things I've insisted on is that we do a renewable energy study. We already know that the district could be more than self-sufficient in energy, but it's an area that's, I think, historically felt that it was somehow exempt from producing its own energy. And I find that very interesting. A lot of rural areas seem to have this idea that they're a bit too beautiful to produce their own energy. Someone else will do it for them. They're never quite clear about what their role in the climate change fight actually is, other than to remain beautiful. And so, you know, we're going out and we're asking those difficult questions. Where shall we build the wind turbines? And that would have been unthinkable two years ago that Cotswold District Council will be asking those questions. And it may be that we get thousands of responses saying you bloody well won't be building any wind turbines. On balance so far, we, we haven't. But, uh, you know, we have had a few people, but we've also had people saying, yes, I totally agree that we will have to find places where we can find that balance between landscape protection and generating energy and playing our part. Uh, and I think it's that nuance that a lot of people understand. Yes, we don't want them all over the shop, but we also are fairly sure we can find some places where a handful of generating assets could work without in unduly impacting the heritage and the landscape. But so far before, it's just been blanket. And so I think it's that, yeah, I do feel brave and I do feel quite proud that we've got to that point in a place that wouldn't have talked about it before. It's excellent. Uh, we need more people like you in different uh, different places and different levels, don't we? All champing at the bit to, to make change. You have these other roles as well. For starters, how do you balance the three roles that you're doing currently? And do they, are, are you are you using part of the, each role to, to be able to progress uh, one role in particular? Yeah, they do, they do overlap. You know, certainly I'm very lucky in the work that I do through Climate Guide. I work with lots of other councils, either providing sort of strategic advice or working on consultancy or, or I do a lot of training as well. And one of the things I enjoy, although it's quite challenging, is that I, I run training for other politicians. Uh, so, you know, basically a full day course. This is the scale of the climate crisis. This is what local government can and should be doing about it. You really need to push the boundary and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that's that's very interesting because obviously I get people from different political backgrounds on that training. I think some people probably don't sign up because they, you know, they don't want to be trained by a Lib Dem and that's fine. But, you know, I've certainly I've trained people from every party as well as independents. That's useful because then I can talk to people and I'm saying, 
ah, well, that thing you want to achieve, uh, Somerset County Council are doing that. Or why don't you talk to Bristol City Council about their procurement, you know, really boring things, <laughs> their procurement policy on zero carbon, such and such. Shropshire Council have this amazing uh, road surfacing scheme that, uh, you know, they've, they've put carbon and climate at the centre of their road resurfacing tender and then suddenly got a very different approach to how it's going to be done. And then another random rural council right down in the southeast that would have no reason to come in contact with Shropshire will suddenly know that because I, you know, I'm able to spread the word and also to bring things back to Cotswold as a result. So I find that very helpful. And then my PhD is, is on the side of that. Again, you know, that's all grown out of what I'm looking at there is you will have seen a lot of councils have run uh, climate assemblies, juries, that sort of deliberative democracy, this idea that you, you take a, a, a randomly but representatively selected sample of the local population uh, and, and they work together over a long period, so 40 hours, several weekends, talking about the issues, and they come up with some recommendations. And on paper, like, I don't think anybody would say that that's not a good idea. But, you know, some of my questions about it are around the process. Are there types of people who lean to that process already because of their wider worldview and therefore want to take part? Are there some people who, who would resist? So therefore, are they slightly biased anyway, because there are people who sort of say, I don't do talking and group work, you know? And then what comes out? So do people believe in the process? And then do they believe in the outcome as well? Is this how people think policy should be made? And is worldview a part of that? Um, so I'm really digging into, and it goes to the question you asked about local. At the moment, I've been looking at nationalism and the role of populism in people's attitudes towards climate policy at a sort of national and global level. But I also want to sort of boil that down and say, is there a, a regionalism you know, is there a sense that people believe what is local, essentially? How, where do people think it's reasonable to make policy? What is the level that they're happy and they say that's our policy? And how do you then knit those together to make comprehensive regional, national and potentially transnational policy to tackle what is ultimately a global problem? So it's it's a sort of building blocks, PhD, really, in a way. You know, what is the scale at which that kind of policy making works and is accepted and acceptable by most people? It sounds fascinating. And if you get some answers from that process, they'll be valuable, won't they, to be able to disseminate? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Hundreds of councils spending hundreds of thousands each running citizens' assemblies only to discover that there was some particular reason why they should have done it differently or chosen a different scale or not done it at all would be a bit of a disaster so I hope it finds something vaguely <laughs> yes. useful I, I'm absolutely sure it will I get a real sense of focus from you that you you're you sound like a really great planner you you start at the bottom you see what it what's needed to be done and then you're on it uh, is it, and I think having more people like that embedded within the system is can only be a good thing I'm thinking now. Uh... Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of councillors out there. I, I felt like 2019 was a little bit of a watershed mm -hmm. moment. I'd actually stood a couple of years before unsuccessfully, but I felt like I felt like I don't know the mood music had changed a bit in 2019, and I think there are people like me around the country now. And I, I guess a plea would be there are there are elections a year from now. You know, just over a year, May 2023, in a lot of English authorities, and. You know, if people are sitting at home and they're frustrated and angry, I didn't know anything about politics. I did, and you don't even really have to be a politician in that you don't have to be political. I think if, you, if you're interested, and particularly if, like me, you feel you've got skills to bring to it, if, if you're conservative, phone up your local conservative group and ask them. If you're Lib Dem, if you're Labour, you know, say, this is what I want to do, I want to bring to it, because you can sit there like a, an anonymous keyboard warrior moaning at your council on the internet, or you can get involved. And even if you only do it for four years if you set yourself a target like I did and say, well, the one thing I'm going to achieve in four years is to totally overhaul the local plan, then you can walk away and say, well, I did that. Yeah. And that's the legacy. And what, what you're halfway, just over halfway through. Uh, uh, and can you see you are on the prize? Over, yes. Uh, over, yeah. So unfortunately, COVID uh, obviously delayed an awful lot of stuff, particularly the first six months. So we were very much hoping that we could, uh, 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 writing a local plan is a very long process. Um, first, you have to do quite a lot of background evidence work, particularly if what you're going to do is go beyond national standards, because 
developers basically have a right in law to make a certain amount of profit when they build. So they can challenge you on what's called the viability argument and say, oh, well, you could ask for zero carbon housing, but we can't possibly afford to do that because it will eat up our profit margin. So you basically have to do the work to prove that that's not true. Uh, and then you have to consult and there are multiple periods of consultation that you're required to do by law, plus writing the actual plan. And then it has to be examined by the planning inspectorate and found sound. So we couldn't really see a way that that could be achieved in less than four years with all the stages we'd have to go to. We're still pretty hopeful that it will be going to examination in early 2023. It might be after the next election, but I would hope that whoever wins the next election in the Cotswolds, uh, if it's not our administration again, doesn't just go, oh, we'll throw four years work in the bin if we don't get it to examination before the date. But, you know, that's that's the risk you take. It wouldn't We wouldn't have been there without COVID and that's where we are now. Very pragmatic, because that 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 would sound awful <laughs> if that were to happen. Yeah, um, I, I'll certainly be, I'll be making a fuss if it does happen. But um, yeah, no, I, I feel I feel there'll be value in it, and I feel across the board politically, everybody wants to see better housing. I think it's just that a lot of local politicians haven't been able to join the dots, so they've had this kind of nagging sense of why are these housing estates being built this way and not really been able to ask the right questions and not had the right policies in place to challenge or demand anything. But I think there've been a lot of local politicians in the Cotswolds and across the country who just haven't been asking the right questions and they haven't had the right policies to ask the right things. And again, at districts and rural areas, what you find is you've got much smaller planning teams with less expertise and you can't necessarily bring on board all sorts of incredibly detailed levels of um, consultancy. So you're sort of left with, with just less knowledge to challenge bad development on. And that's really what we're hoping to overcome in the Cotswolds. So we'll have like a gold standard plan and planners who feel really confident in saying really early on to developers, uh-uh. That's not how it gets done around here, because some of it is about the mood music where developers think they can get away with it. They will. And if they're never really being challenged and they're seeing a bunch of old duffers in a tiny underfunded planning team, they'll say, oh, let's just put in the, you know, the bog standard planning thing that spits out of an algorithm. Here's our standard housing estate design in places where you ask difficult questions then they get more nervous and they put more work into it. And we're already seeing that in the Cotswolds. We don't have any new policies yet because we're still writing the plan, but we're already seeing developers going, "Mm, let's just offer this thing, you know. So we're, we're seeing progress. And I think that's because they're hearing the message. That's what we want to hear is that it's going in the right direction. 2050 is obviously the target for many different net zero aspirations. Can you see that we're going to make sufficient progress in that time frame? What What do you think 2050 is going to look like in terms of achievement? I think it depends who runs for election in the next two cycles and wins. <laughs> I mean, we talk about 2050. 2050 is very much a backstop date and it's very much the tail. If you look at any sensible graph showing you how emissions have to fall in the UK and and globally it's heavily front-loaded and so we need to make a huge amount of progress by the end of this decade and to do that we need to be picking off like I said those big impact areas you know our buildings our transport system in particular as well as difficult behavioral things and what I found really disappointing is Back in October last year, just before COP, which we were chairing at at the UK, our government produced our um, net zero strategy, alongside which they published a lot of other documents, one of which was some research, internal research they'd done on behaviour change that included difficult conversational things like taxes on red meat and regular flying tax and all that kind of stuff. And they buried it. They accidentally published it. And then a day or two later, they pulled it and buried it and tried to say it was all not a thing. Because that's what I'm talking about, about political bravery. At that level, they are not brave enough to have those conversations. And also, we've got a housing stock that needs written yet in the last decade. We've had the Green Deal, which was widely considered to be disastrous and incredibly poorly designed, followed by the Green Homes Grant, which Rishi Sunak announced during uh, the first lockdown, you know, mid-2020. Huge amounts of money, most of which was subsequently pulled. 
we also when we look, you know, nationally, we've reduced our emissions by 40 odd percent in the last 30 years. We've now got more to do in the same amount of time. And it's all more difficult from this point forward because we did the easy behind the scenes things. And if you look sectorally at what we achieved in the last 30 years, the two sectors with the most pitiful savings are transport, where we've only reduced our national emissions by 5% in 30 years, and residential. And this is because they're two places where politicians know that they have to talk to people about what they do on a day-to-day basis, the homes they live in and the way they move around. And without the level of bravery to have those conversations, but also without what I feel needs to be a sort of Keynesian injection of cash in skills and training, particularly around buildings retrofit, I currently feel very pessimistic that we will have made these huge gains by the end of this decade. And then that means that what would have been dealing with a tail between 2030 and 2050 of incredibly technically difficult stuff, we'll still be dealing with stuff that was actually technically very easy to solve and needed just political will and money. So yeah, I hate to sound <laughs> depressing, but someone needs to turn around and say, we're going to fix the houses. And right now you could go out today and close a deal and get the keys on a brand new house and it will not be zero carbon. And that to me is an absolute travesty. And it's abhorrent that we have a government who has resisted and rejected repeated well evidenced calls for why building standards have to be improved over the last decade. Uh, and we are now in a position where we are loading entirely un, entirely foreseeable retrofit costs on, on homeowners. So you've got this issue where you've got the planning system, which is in its most utopian form, that place where the, the, the smallest number of people deal with the largest number of houses. And you can pass every development through that system. You can ask for the best and it comes out at the bottom. And it doesn't matter then if it's going to be social housing, private rented housing, privately owned mansions. It's all gone through that bottleneck of demanding the best. If you put it through that bottleneck and it's only able to demand mediocre, when it comes out of the bottom end, the private rented landlords, they're not going to go, oh, the first thing we'll do is improve all this housing at vast expense to ourselves. The social housing providers will go, well, there's nothing we can do because that budgets are capped. Lower income householders will say, we haven't got any spare money to do those retrofit. Even the wealthiest people will say, well, we're quite busy, actually. I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. You're just making life difficult for the entire nation. And yet that's where we are. So I do feel pessimistic about 2030, particularly. And that makes me pessimistic about 2050. Yes. Housing is is a very big ask but it needs to be done doesn't it for all those reasons that you say and i i I do find it extraordinary it's one thing having the existing housing stock that has to be retrofitted it's another thing to be still producing houses that are no good aren't going to be resilient (laughs) it's maddening (laughs) that that's 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 the hard bit to swallow the the you know the current state of housing but yes and that that could be a whole another episode Finally, Rachel, because you've given me such fabulous insight into operations at a low level, uh, local level, uh, really, really fascinating. But I just wanted to ask you in terms of your personal life, have you done something as a consequence of just, I mean, you live and breathe behavioral change and how you'd like the world to look? Uh, Do you do something on a personal level that you think, okay, I can make a difference in my own life? by doing this but is there something that you do that you think well I'm, I'm pleased that I'm doing that yeah uh, and and some of that is about with our children as well you know so cu- cutting down I mean we don't really meat at all and we eat very limited other meat we're not vegetarian and that's partly because I'm not I'm not into these sort of absolutism and this goes back to identity actually if you start saying to people you should be a vegan to some people that's like saying you should be a buddhist you should be a you should be you should be Christian with it. It's, it's label, it's an identity label. It's much better, I think, to talk to people about eating more vegan meals. That's a behavior, that's something anyone can do. And you don't have to change who you believe you are to do it. And so I'd say that, you know, 10 years ago, I probably ate, I don't know, I probably eat 70, 80% less meat than I did 10 years ago. And I still do eat meat from time to time. The key things for me though is I know my big impact areas were travel. We live in the middle of nowhere in a rural area. So we changed to an electric car quite a long time ago, at effectively great expense to ourselves. 
because the range is not good enough and you know they were more expensive then as well but that was you know I knew that the amount of driving we had to do to go everywhere was a big part of our footprint because I'd worked it out similarly the house it's a complicated old house but having a plan to retrofit our home you know basically I have my own 2030 plan and I think that's important because if you live in even a relatively normal house mine's quite old and complicated you can just be overwhelmed by the sense that you've got to be net zero so then I think it's will say you haven't got the money or necessarily the time to do that but you could be there by the end of this decade if you thought about it so first of all get someone in to give you a plan and then work out sensibly what you can do first and there's never been a better time than now because a, we don't ever want to have to use Russia's gas again. And B, you know, we're at a point where everybody's bills are sky high. So economically, it makes sense at this point. And again, it's like it's like the national thing. Front load it now and get the tail sorted, you know, do it like that. But but do it for yourself. Have that plan. But don't be terrified and not backed by the thought that it's this overwhelming task that you can't achieve because you'll always be able to break it into something more bite sized. Start with diet. But the other thing is we have a sort of no fly policy start with your diet think about your holidays think about what you buy look at how you drive around and work out what you can do to your house and those things between them will be a massive massive part of your personal household carbon footprint but you're not going to achieve them all overnight so project manage it for yourself that's what everyone needs to do that is excellent advice and a brilliant place to finish uh, and it makes it feel doable at an individual level uh, and hope that all the other levels <laughs> will accompany that those changes that we all need to get involved with. Thank you so much for your time. It's been marvellous, Rachel. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks a lot. Climate action is needed at every level of our society. And Rachel provided a fascinating insight into how the local government are meeting the challenge of the climate emergency. Unsurprisingly, it's a mixed picture, with issues of insufficient finance, an unprioritised rural locality and party politics. I was so impressed with Rachel's pragmatism, her unflinching vision and how she is just getting on with the less glamorous but very necessary activity of producing a viable plan to drive crucial changes. We definitely need more Rachels in local government. If you want to connect with Rachel, links can be found in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you, of course, for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share the podcast too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.